Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. It's great to uh, be here. Honor and I are really pleased uh, to be here. We bring you greetings from the South Harbour Vineyard. Um, We are, as a family Exports, British exports to New Zealand. We've been in Auckland for nearly 10 years. And uh, as Rachel said, uh, I was originally uh, ordained uh, as an Anglican minister in in the UK. I went to a vicar training factory there. Um, I was a minister in the UK, came here to be uh, a minister. And uh, I've had links with the Vineyard Church for many, many years. I had the privilege of hearing John Wimber speak in London uh, when I was a teenager. That's a long time ago. Um, but um, I've always been, had, you know, had lots of links with, with the vineyard. And so uh, it's no surprise that I happen to be pastoring uh, within the vineyard movement here. Um, it's great for us to be here. We have two boys uh, who are in their early 20s. As Rachel said, one of my passions is to help people connect with the Bible, to help people to love, to learn, and to live God's Word. And I hope that by the end of our service today, you will feel you've moved on in each of those three areas, that you will feel that you love God's Word a bit more, that you feel you will have learned something from God's Word, and that you feel equipped to be living it out in your everyday lives. Matt and Jacinda have asked me to speak today on the theme of hope. And this is such an important topic because Hope is so crucial to us thriving. Somebody has said that hope is the oxygen of the soul. I love that phrase. It's as important as that. And I believe that hope is especially important for us at this time because we seem to be living in the midst of such challenging times. When we read the media, news reports of all that's happening in the world, it can read like a very sad story. And what the world desperately needs is a better story of hope. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of hearing somebody who perhaps is not a church person talking about the troubles of the world. Let's kind of imagine that perhaps you're in a work context and maybe on a Monday morning and somebody says to you, oh, I was looking at the news, you know, on the weekend. Oh, it's all just, it's all so terrible. You know, there's gun crime in the USA and there's the Ukrainian war still going on. There's inflation, there's a cost of living crisis. I don't know what the world's coming to. Ever had somebody use that phrase to you? I don't know what the world's coming to. Can I suggest that the next time somebody says that phrase to you, I don't know what the world's coming to, that you say to them, I do. I know what the world's coming to. And would you like to know why I think that? Because those who are followers of Jesus do know where the world's coming to. And because of Jesus, there's a very hopeful 
end to the story. And the end of the story is written in the very closing chapters of the whole Bible, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. This is the better story of hope that the world desperately needs. When other people lose hope because of the state of the world, we can speak hope into their lives that there is a better story to tell about the world. So this morning I want to bring a message from the final chapters in the whole Bible, from the end of the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is quite a remarkable book. If I asked you, which book of the Bible have you found it most difficult to understand, how many would say Revelation? Quite a few hands going up there. In my experience, the book of Revelation either leaves people a bit confused or a bit scared or a bit of both altogether. Now, I want to assure you that Revelation can be read with understanding and with great hope. The main thing that confuses us about Revelation is the style of the writing. It features very dramatic visions with beasts and strange-looking creatures. I've got a slide which is an artist's impression of the vision of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's like pretty dramatic kind of imagery, isn't it? It's a style of writing called apocalyptic writing. And we just don't get this style of writing nowadays. Apocalyptic writing is meant to be highly symbolic and to employ a lot of metaphor. And as such, it is never intended to be read literally. And some of the more bizarre interpretations that people come up with from the book of Revelation are because they read the text literally. The way to read Revelation is to understand what the imagery evokes as it was understood by the very first people to ever read the book, Christians in the first century Roman Empire. So in a moment, we're going to take a look at some of the visions from the very end of the book of Revelation. We're going to learn through the lens of that first century context. And we're also going to see that there are very strong connections between the imagery in Revelation and the Old Testament. So if you want to read the book of Revelation well, you need to know your Old Testament well. Now, I began by saying that this is a message about hope and that we're going to draw this theme through the book of Revelation. So let me fire out a quick question to you. How many times do you think the word hope occurs in the book of Revelation? Just shout out a few answers that you think might be correct. 62. Thank you. Any other options? 12. That's a good biblical number. 70, that's another good biblical number. Any more? 24, that's another good biblical number. The answer is none. Oh, did, did, did you think that? Very good. Very good. None. The book of Revelation does not contain 
the word hope. The New Testament Greek word for hope is the word elpis. It occurs in 15 of the 27 New Testament books, but Revelation is not one of them. It's like, what's going on? I thought this was supposed to be a message about hope in Revelation, and the, like, the word itself doesn't occur. Well, don't be too worried about this. Let me show you a quote on the screen from famous writer C.S. Lewis. This is what Lewis said about how do you write something in the most compelling way? How do you describe something in the most compelling way? He said, in writing, don't use adjectives which merely tell us how you want us to feel about the things you are describing. I mean, instead of telling us the thing is terrifying, describe it so that we will be terrified. Don't say it was delightful. Make us say delightful when we've read the description. You see, all those words, horrifying, wonderful, hideous, exquisite, are only like saying to your readers, please will you do my job for me. Lewis was such a literary genius. Can you see what he's saying here? He's saying it's far more compelling to evoke a feeling of delight in someone if you describe something without using the word delight. Let the power of the writing lead you to come to your own conclusion that it is delightful. Then the truth of that will really touch their heart. And that is what is going on with the book of Revelation. The writer of the book, who calls himself John, uses compelling and dramatic imagery in order to evoke hope. He doesn't choose to use the word hope himself. He doesn't actually need to. Because God is going to speak through the power of the writing to engender transforming hope in the depths of our hearts. And Revelation does this by charting an incredible trajectory of hope, which builds and builds across its pages until it reaches a mighty crescendo in the final few chapters. And in those closing pages, we are presented with a series of visions which convey the final victory of God. And that presentation of the final victory of God is crucial for us to live with a sense of hope in the here and now. Our present circumstances can be so challenging and difficult that all of us need to know that the tough stuff we experience now is not the final word on our lives. We need to know there is some kind of commensurate recompense for all our sufferings in the present. We long to know that for each time we have been treated badly, there will be the restoration of justice. We yearn for assurance that for each moment we have wrestled with physical infirmity, there will be the recompense of healing. We want the confidence of knowing that for every sorrow, there will be joy. We ache for security and peace when we have known the chaos of an unsettled existence. 
And we want to know that death does not signal the end, but is rather a stepping stone on our way to a glorious future. Are these not some of our deepest yearnings? And the book of Revelation offers us hope for every one of these deep longings. How does the book of Revelation describe the final victory of God? Well, it does this through what scholars call a series of seven unnumbered visions at the end of the book. They are unnumbered because the writer doesn't say, first I saw this, and then second I saw this, and then third I saw this. Each vision is simply identified by the trigger phrase, and I saw. It's just two words in the Greek, kai idon. The writer just goes, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw seven times over. Uh, on the next couple of slides, I've summarized the first lines of each of these seven final visions. And you can see the trigger words at the beginning uh, of them. So this slide here has the first four of them. And then the next slide has the last three. And we're going to be focusing uh, today on the very last one, the seventh of the seven, the kind of the mighty crescendo of them all, where the writer says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, what is the significance of these visions being unnumbered? Well, there's two things to say here. The description of seven visions uses the number seven symbolically to convey the sense that in these visions we get a complete picture of God's final victory. So with God's victory, there are not going to be any loose ends at the end of the day. When God's final victory comes, it will be a total and complete victory. But the unnumbered visions also guide us not to create any neat and tidy linear timelines about how all this is going to play out. The visions are not meant to be read chronologically. They are unnumbered because they each give us a different perspective of what God's final victory will look like. The very structure of these seven visions doesn't provide us with a neat chronological order, so we shouldn't impose one on the text. Now this morning, as I said, we're going to focus our attention on the final one of these visions because it really is the great crescendo of them all. And we're going to be hearing two short Bible readings just of uh, the description of the visions from Revelation chapter 21. And just so that you get a different change of voice, Honor is going to read to us the first four verses from Revelation 21. So the first reading is Revelation 21, reading verses 1 to 4. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Thanks very much. So in this reading, I want to mention briefly four features of the new heaven and earth that are described in these verses. Now, first of all, let's look at the very rather, what you might think is a strange reference, where it says there's not going to be any more sea in the new creation. Who loves the sea? Of course you do, you're Coast Vineyard, aren't you? Are you feeling a bit disappointed where it says, the sea's not going to be there? Panic not. Panic not. Remember, this is not literal. This is all symbolic. So we have to understand, why is it talking about the sea not being there? And it's because in the ancient world, the sea carried three negative connotations. We love the sea in our context, but in the world of the book of Revelation, there were three negative contexts about the sea. The first is that it was considered to be a place of danger because you could die at sea and your body would be lost forever. Secondly, because the sea was constantly moving with its waves and its swell the sea came to symbolize chaos because it's never still. It just keeps moving. It never settles. It's not like a still pond or a lake. And then thirdly, the sea was thought to be the origin of all the evil in the world. So people postulated this concept of what they called the abyss. It was pictured to be a deep hole at the very bottom of the sea, and that's where all the evil in the world came from. Now, when you put all that together, and then the vision says, in the new creation, there will be no more sea, it means, in the new creation, there will be no more evil, no more chaos, no more danger, no more death. That's good. That's good. The second feature is this glorious city coming down from heaven to earth. Notice the direction of travel. In the new creation, heaven comes down to us. Not we go up to heaven. The emphasis of New Testament teaching about end times is not about Christians being whisked away from the earth to heaven, but when a Christian dies, they sleep in death, held in the presence of Jesus, awaiting his return and the resurrection of the body. 
so that we are given new bodies like the one that Jesus had when he rose from the dead. And it's with those bodies in that embodied existence that we will live in the new creation. Then thirdly, the imagery here turns to a wedding picture. The city is dressed like a beautiful bride. The Greek word used to describe how the city is adorned is the Greek word cosmeo. It's where we get our word cosmetics from. This is a beautifully dressed bride in splendor. Revelation and elsewhere in the New Testament uses this wedding metaphor in a double direction. The bride is both the holy city of the new creation and it's the people of God. The church is called the bride of Christ. You've probably heard the phrase, oh, it's a marriage made in heaven. Well, this is not a marriage made in heaven. This is the marriage of heaven and earth. This is the final outcome of when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is the marriage of Jesus and his people. And then fourthly, we have the beautiful promise that in the new creation, there will be no more tears, sadness, pain, or death. This links with the rest of New Testament teaching about our future life. As I said, we will have new and glorious resurrection bodies, like the one that Jesus had when he rose from the dead. These bodies will never wear out, never get sick, and never die. So we will not suffer physically, because our bodies will be perfect, and we won't experience relational pain because we will be in a perfect relationship with God and one another. This is the hope of recompense that we thought about earlier. This is where injustice gets overturned with justice, where suffering gets overturned with healing. This is the recompense of hope. Let's go on now to hear a few more selected verses from the next bit of the vision, and Honor uh, will read this again, and you can follow this again on the slides. So we're still in Revelation 21, and there's some selected verses between verses 9 and 21. One of the seven angels who had seen, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. It was 144 cubits thick. 
The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Thanks very much. We're going to dig beneath this powerful imagery. I'm just going to mention a few features of the text that we've just heard. We have here a very powerful image of the security that God's people will know in the new creation. In the ancient world, the security of a city lay in its walls. The higher and thicker the walls, the safer the city. In the vision um, of the holy city here, the walls are described as being 144 cubits thick. Now, uh, what is that in real measurement? That's about 60 meters. So if you want to picture that, that's the width of a rugby pitch. It's kind of like, imagine that in, in, in your head. That's, that's how thick the walls are. These numbers are also symbolic but the numbers evoke something. Okay, so just have that image of a wall as thick as the width of a rugby pitch. How tall are the walls? Well, the height of the wall is said to be 12,000 stadia. What is that in normal measurement? That is 2,250 kilometers. If you want to try and picture what that looks like, Take the entire length of the country, north to south, from Bluff to the Cape, and add onto it roughly twice the distance from here to the Cape. You got that? That's how high the wall is, in literal terms. And it's the width of a rugby pitch. Those are walls that are impenetrable, okay? utterly impenetrable. That is the security we will know in the new creation. And then there is powerful symbolism in the dimensions of the city. There isn't time to cover all the details of the numbers here, but one of the most important features is that the holy city is described as being a perfect cube shape. The little um, slide, I think, there we are, a perfect cube. It's as long as it's high and wide. Now, there's symbolism in the shape of the holy city. Cubes are symbolic of God and, by association, his people. Why is that the case? Well, here, this is an example of where there's a strong link between the imagery of Revelation and the Old Testament. If you read in the story of the Old Testament where King Solomon builds a magnificent temple in Jerusalem, at the heart of the temple was the special room where the manifest presence of God was said to dwell, the room called the Holy of Holies. It was built, shaped to be a perfect cube because people believed that God was a God of order. He brings order from chaos. And a cube is one of the most orderly shapes because it's, all the dimensions are exactly the same. So cubes and cubic numbers came to be symbolic of God. And that is why the, 
city is shaped like this because it's the city where God dwells and it's the city where God's holy people dwell with him. And a second feature of the dimensions of the city is that it's ginormously big. As I mentioned, it's 2,250 kilometers in literal terms in each direction. If the city was literally that size, it would be big enough to accommodate the entire population of the Roman Empire at the time Revelation was written with room to spare. Now, as I said, these numbers are all symbolic, but they evoke a sense of space. There's plenty of room in God's new creation for everyone who chooses to receive God's invitation of life. No one needs to worry that there won't be enough room. Are you feeling hopeful? Remember, the word hope never occurs itself in Revelation. But these final visions cannot leave us but feeling a powerful sense of hope which transforms our present. And that's the most important thing about how we apply the hope that we find in the book of Revelation. It's not all about the future. It's about the future impacting our present. These seven visions of the great victory of God are set before us in order to hold us steady in the challenging storms of the present time. As I said towards the beginning of this message, all of us need the assurance that our present experience of challenge and suffering is not the final say on our lives. And it is the visions of revelation that give us that confidence. We can live with patient endurance now because we know what God's ultimate purposes are. As I said earlier, we can be people who share our hope with those who need a better story for the world. So the next time someone says to you, I don't know what the world's coming to, you're going to say what? I do. Because those who bear hope can bestow hope. Revelation ends with this astonishing vision of the holy city. And the promised new creation is described as a royal residence, the dwelling of the true king. When I lived in the UK, I had the privilege of staying on two occasions in a royal residence. I was the conference manager of two conferences that took place in Windsor Castle. There's a, a slide of one of the gates of Windsor Castle, I think. Uh, have we got a slide of Windsor Castle? Maybe not. Maybe not. Picture. Try and picture in your mind. Oh, there we are. There's, the, the, there's Windsor Castle. So because, of course, it's a royal residence, the security is very high, I had to send my passport and my car details ahead of time. And I did that, and I hoped that it would all check out. And then on the day when I had to drive to the castle to set things up, I kind of realized, oh, I'm going to have to talk to the security guards on the gate, and I do hope that all my details have checked out, because I haven't sort of heard anything. So I was driving towards the gate, and there are two checkpoints on either side of the barrier, and I was driving like a little bit nearer and nearer, kind of nearer and nearer, and as I 
Imagine that the front row of chairs is where the gate is. As I came nearer, the gate just opened automatically. And so I kept driving, and I kept driving, and nobody sort of stopped me, and I kept driving, and I came level to the two guards on either side, and they waved at me in a very friendly kind of way, and I nervously waved back at them. <laughs> and I drove straight in, and nobody stopped me at all, and I ended up driving to the special parking place, and I stopped, and at first I thought, what terrible security for, for a royal resident. No one stopped me, no one's like asked me who I am, the gates just opened and I've just drived in. How can a bunch of guards who've probably got, you know, live, you know, rifles and things, kind of licensed to kill, all these kind of people, how can they possibly just like let me in? And then I realized, ah, oh, actually, they know everything about me. Because I've sent all my passport stuff, you know, my passport has been run through the security checks at the highest level. They've checked that my car's not been used for, you know, a robbery in the past and all that kind of stuff. The reason why they've opened the gate and let me through is not that they don't know about me. They know everything about me. And I've been given clearance at the highest level, to come into a royal residence. It's going to be like that for us when we stand at the gates of the new creation. Some of us might be quite nervous about whether we're going to be allowed in, but if we've placed our trust in Jesus, then the work of the cross has already been effected in our lives. We already have a new status with God, we are right with him. We have security clearance, as it were, at the highest level. So on that great and glorious day, when we stand before those pearly gates with our new resurrection body, we don't have to fear that the gate is not going to open for us. Like those Windsor Castle guards did for me, the angels at the gates are just going to wave us in. <laughs> no questions asked because salvation is a done deal for us once we submit our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. We know where the world's coming to. It's coming to a glorious conclusion where God will destroy all evil and he will renew his creation so that we can live with him forever. That's a better story of hope for all the world and the door of that hope is always open for everyone to choose. I'm going to pray a short prayer as we finish. This is a prayer based on Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm that is all about the victory of God. And so the theme of this prayer is really uh, fitting to close off the message. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, divine Son and eternal priest, inspire us with the confidence of your final conquest of evil and grant that daily on our way we may drink of the brook of your eternal life and so find courage against all adversities for your mercy's sake. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. 
If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day and be blessed.